0: first reading is Isaiah 58, 6, found on page 736 of your pew Bibles. So it is written, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, and untie the cords of yoke, of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke? The next reading is Isaiah 10, 1-4, found on page 684. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. This is the word of the
1: Lord. I speak to you this morning in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Giving it up. What began as a nice Lenten tie-in feels more real this weekend than perhaps it has for any of us in some time. Vacations we had planned are no more. School is canceled or moving online. Libraries, community centers, churches are closed. Office workers are being told to work from home. And many small businesses and people who work hourly in what's determined to be a non essential industry are fearing what could come of their livelihoods and what will this mean for their well being in the coming days and weeks. And what if it's months? Isaiah 58 seems now to be an apt case study in the habits of people who have been asked and caused to give up things that they don't want to give up. In Isaiah 58, people gave up food, but only if it caught God's attention. They gave up work, but they made sure their workers would make up the difference. They gave up their usual patterns and rhythms of life. And the things that that let them do were only the ugliest things, the most unjust things, the things that actually made God say that he wasn't listening to their prayers if this was the way they were choosing to behave. This weekend, we have been advised by the best public health advice available to us that we too must give up things great and small, things that may only impact our comfort as well as things that may affect our economic realities. And we have seen in our own country how people can respond at the prospect of having to give these things up. Friends, the toilet paper is the least of our concerns. People have been panic buying food, they've been profiteering off hand sanitizer and wipes, they've been stealing masks from hospitals where they are most useful and do the most good. It seems that even the kind of interruption that we've experienced so far has the possibility of turning people toward their basest instincts, toward self-preservation, toward short-sighted opportunism, toward simple theft. A headline that I read in the New York Times yesterday, he has 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer and nowhere to sell them. And I think a response from God of the angel armies. Woe to those who deprive the poor of their rights, withhold justice from the oppressed, making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless. You see, for generations, people have been about this very kind of business. Even people who we might otherwise think are good with the right circumstances without thinking about it too much can find themselves adding to the problems of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. What begins as anxiety can turn into fear, and fear can inspire decisions that appear irrational, but according to public policy researchers and experts in emergency preparedness are actually quite common, are actually quite natural, are an attempt for us to try to control a situation that we have no control over. That we can control the amount of toilet paper we buy, even if we can't control anything else. Many people now feel they have no control and are acting out in these ways, and I wish that this reality was a lesson that we were not learning so clearly in these days. I think we can understand, though, these kinds of responses, because we've had them ourselves. Maybe we haven't bought pallets of hand sanitizer from Costco. But I can say for myself that I've seen the pictures of the empty shelves at every grocery store in walking distance of where I live. And I've thought to myself, maybe I should try and get some more food while I can. Even though I know that I have enough to survive two weeks if I have to. Even though I know that those shelves will be restocked next week. Nevertheless, I see the scarcity of the present day, the crowds collecting more and more, and I feel within myself that unless I make a mountain of food in my kitchen, that somehow I will suffer. We convince ourselves that there is only the hoarder and the one who goes without, that there is only the oppressor and the one who is oppressed, only the ones who commit injustice and the ones who suffer injustice. And if we must choose to hoard or to go without, well, we choose to hoard. This has been our experience for much of our lives. We see how those who hoard for themselves, who behave unjustly, they appear to prosper. And it seems to be perfectly reasonable for us to join their number in order to avoid the alternative. The story of our world appears too often in too many ways to be that the ones who are willing to behave unjustly win and those who suffer injustice lose. And so our instinct is to avoid suffering at all costs, even at the cost of becoming the source of suffering for another. In order to stop ourselves from making that mountain of food in our kitchens, we must remember the vulnerable for whom hour-long lines at Metro are not an option. Maybe they just can't stand that long. We must remember the ones without a car who can only take home with them the things that they can carry in their arms and on their backs. We must remember the ways that our actions could be tightening those chains of injustice in another person's life that when we are meant to be loosing them. How we, in fact, might be robbing others of the very things that they need for their well-being as we seek to quell any anxiety that might be within us. In a world where there is only oppressed and oppressor, where the wicked always seem to prosper, it feels like an impossible choice to choose to be the oppressed, to not participate in injustice, even when we know that if we do, we'll certainly be all right. But church, this is a lie. It is a lie that the wicked prosper, and it is a lie that in order to ensure our flourishing that we must endanger the well-being of our neighbor. You see, we worship a God who commands love of God and love of neighbor, a God who ties those two things so inextricably together that he says that anybody who says they love God but hates their brother or sister is a liar. We worship a Savior who came willingly to endure suffering and pain so that we could enjoy community and life. And if there's something that a God like that hates, it is evil. It is the perpetuation of wrongdoing. It is the chains of injustice. And that's why this is the fast that our God has declared. Because those chains, they're choking us. And they're choking our world, and God cannot bear to see it. That's why God says, woe to the wicked ones. And in the scripture reading we heard today, God asks those who do evil, who deprive the poor and prey on widows, God asks them, what will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? God's saying that in the end, the wicked will be undone. Any prosperity they might have enjoyed will seem to be very short-lived. And any suffering they have been caused will become undone with them. And flourishing life will follow for all those who would not succumb to the temptation of stepping on their neighbor's back in order to give themselves a leg up. But it's not enough. It's not enough, however, for us to simply refrain from injustice. Not enough for me to just say that, you know, I have enough food in my kitchen, I don't need to panic by, but then to retreat into myself until the worries of the present day pass us by. No, the fast that our God has chosen is a fast of actively participating in the undermining of injustice, of thwarting its purposes of freeing the oppressed, of lightening the burdens of many people. The fast that God calls us to is one of acting out love and generosity when the alternative story and the popular narrative is one of injustice. God invites us to choose another story, one where we share our food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter, where we see the naked and clothe them and we do not turn away from our own flesh and blood. In the weekly email this weekend, I highlighted that in this uncertain and troubling time, we have been offered an opportunity to practice love in deep and meaningful ways. We are being offered and afforded an opportunity to love our neighbors as ourselves. In short, we are being offered the opportunity to be the church. And when fear is easy to fall into, when self-isolation could mean every person for themselves, we are called to choose compassion, which means to suffer alongside. We are called to check on those who have no family or friends nearby. Those of us who are healthy are called to offer to pick up groceries or medicine for those who are in isolation. That we can extend the hospitality of prayer and the generosity of the extra that we each might have to those who are most concerned about what the days ahead might look like for them. While this virus is new, and the position that it has placed us gathered here in is also new as well, we do well to remember that the Christian church has ministered in plagues and epidemics for 2,000 years, that this is not a new part of our story that it was the decision of the church to care for the sick and the abandoned in plague quarters of Rome that led to the church's growth originally. It was the decisions of the reformers to stay in plague cities in Europe and minister to those whose spiritual well being was just as important as their physical health. It has been the decision of the church to recognize the wisdom of healthy distance and good hygiene and to establish hospitals for the first time. But in all of these things, to choose to never abandon community entirely, never to allow practices like social distancing to turn into complete social isolation. This is not the call of the gospel. The call of the Christian life, rather, is to see the needs that are present to us in this time and to respond to them wholeheartedly, taking the posture of servants to love and help others and caring for ourselves not out of self-interest, not at the expense of those around us, but in the interest of the most vulnerable, that our hygiene might pre- prevent their exposure, that our health might, would mean more opportunity for help and community for them. And that even if illness should befall us, that we might still be able to use whatever resources and faculties we have to be present alongside those who are ill and alone. The reason that the church could behave in these ways in the past and the reason that I believe the church can still behave in these ways today is because we are a people who know where our hope comes from. We are people who have reason for the hope that is within us. That though the earth should shake and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though their waters roar and foam and the mountains quake in the surge, that we will not fear. For God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Rather, instead of spending time in fear, and trying to be coaxed into positions of hope, we have the opportunity to begin with our hope and to become the very hope of the world. Friends, we might not have a choice in the things that we must give up in these days, but we do have a choice about the kinds of new practices we take up, whether they loose the chains of injustice or tighten their bonds in the way of Jesus this lenten way of the cross reminds us of the promise of our god that we have no reason to fear that in trouble and trial and even in death there is new life better life to be found in him that in fact injustice will be of no advantage to the wicked in god's judgment and that those who enact righteousness who live into justice will live into justice for all of their days for their deeds will follow them. May our choices be choices of love, love of God and love of neighbor, and may justice and mercy flow from our lives to all who we meet for the sake of the fast that God has chosen and for the sake of the kingdom that God is building and which we one day will fully know. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we weren't ready for giving it up. We weren't ready for the kinds of demands this pandemic has already placed on our lives and and will yet place on our lives. But we know that in you we have reason for hope. That in this situation or something far worse that we can't even imagine... You have called us to be salt and light. You have called us to be people of hope and joy. You have called us to offer your peace in a world that always has something to fear, always has something to be anxious about. You have encouraged us to realize that we've never been in control and that we trust you always have been and always will be. And so we pray for our church in these coming days and weeks that you would move us to acts of compassion, that the fast you have chosen would be acts of justice and mercy, and that these would come from hearts of trust and hope and faith and joy. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.